All right. The only announcement that I know of tonight is that in two weeks, on Thursday night on the 30th of March, uh, Scott Ulrich will be speaking. I will be at the Spring Bible Conference at Tucson Bible Church uh, for the 29th, 30th, and 31st, returning Saturday the 1st. I'll be here on the 2nd of April, which I believe is Palm Sunday this year. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful we can come together just to be encouraged and strengthened by your word. We know that there are so many things that seem to be going wrong in the world around us today. This is nothing new. It's happened before. It'll happen again. It's often happening even though we don't know it. But we are to trust in you. We are to wait upon you. We are not to get our eyes on the situations, the circumstances, our emotions, or any other human factor. But our eyes are to be focused upon you, trusting in you, waiting upon you, claiming the promises of Scripture so that we can continue to advance in our own personal spiritual growth, but also to be a light and a witness to others. Father, tonight as we look at what is going on in uh, Judges 17, the implications of it, we pray that you would open our eyes to see what is going on around us, for it has a great application to our thinking for today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Judges 17, and tonight we're going to continue talking about a theme I started last week related to uh, false religion, and we're going to talk about counterfeit religion. And uh, one thing I thought about is the question of revivals, that uh, if unless you're head has been under a rock for the last two or three months. There have been two significant things that have come out about revivals. One is the Asbury Revival, the so-called Asbury Revival that started in Asbury College in, um, in Kentucky and has allegedly spread to some other uh, Christian schools. Um, And the second is the film that came out that I wrote a film review of on the Jesus Revolution. And so there's a lot of things that we can talk about, we ought to be educated about in terms of our own thinking. So as we come to our passage in Judges chapter 17, what is basically happening is you have this uh, individual Micah who goes through this situation where he... Uh, steals money from his mother, which is a violation of the Ten Commandments. And then he gives it back to her, and she's going to take some of it to 
uh, and, and they're going to make an idol. And they're going to set that up. And one thing leads to another, and we have this whole story It is about introducing this counterfeit religion, this idolatrous religion into Israel uh, during what is probably the early part of this period of the Judges. Uh, as I pointed out in the past, Judges 17 and 18 have a focus upon the apostasy of the people uh, as they, have be- they become paganized, and it emphasizes the priesthood and the people, and they're intertwined in these two stories, 17 and 18, and then 19, 20, and, and 21. And so this question of counterfeit religion comes up. And what we have, just to by way of review in Deuteronomy 12, this is a chapter that emphasizes what is known as the law of the central sanctuary. The principle is God determines how and under what circumstances he will be worshipped. He sets the rules because he's the creator. He, has the, he is the only one who has the right to define worship and to set the rules of worship. And so what he tells the Israelites as they're getting ready to go into this paganized country, which is rife with the idolatry of the fertility religions, the nature gods of uh, rain and thunder, all of the gods and goddesses that are worshipped in order to produce um, fertility in terms of their crops. It's an agricultural uh, community. And so God gives them specific instructions. Not only are they to annihilate every man, woman, and child, but they are to, according to verse 2, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods. Now, why is he going, why is God so, uh, so harsh against their, 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 sincere religious beliefs because of where it takes us. False worship, false beliefs have bad consequences. Good ideas have good consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. Bad beliefs have bad consequences. And so he wants to eradicate the evil that is there because, as it states elsewhere in Deuteronomy, what lies behind these idols are demons. And so this is really demonism and the worship of demons. And so they are to completely destroy these centers of worship. And verse 3 says, You shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. So go through and just eradicate any evidence of that worship. And then he says, you shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. In other words, what God is saying is you can't go over to other religious systems and say, oh, look at that. That's a good idea. I like their music. Let's let's bring that over here and use some of that music to worship God. Uh, look at how they do sacrifices. Well, that sounds like a good idea. Let's incorporate that. There's no assimilation we have a modern word for it. It's called ecumenicalism, where we see these different branches of Christianity that today have gotten so far away from the word, it's it's almost unbelievable. 
and that at that doctrine has been completely eliminated biblical doctrine has been eliminated from their systems due to the uh, adoption of liberalism liberalism starting point is there is no god and if there were a god he couldn't communicate to us the way the bible says he does and that's the really the presupposition of all uh, religious liberalism and so this is an idolatrous religion because it's the idol is human intelligence and human thinking that uh, ultimately lies behind the idea of coming up with these uh, these various deities that are worshipped that are just sophisticated idols of the mind. And so God says that this is extremely dangerous and self-destructive. So he says you shall not worship the Lord your God with these things. No ecumenicalism, no assimilation, no compromise with the false systems of worship and the false thinking. Verse 5 starts with a big but in contrast. Instead of what they're doing, you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses. So Micah is going to come along and he's going to set up an idol in his house. He's going to choose the place. This is what modern man does. Modern man comes along and he chooses the place with where he's going to worship God. He chooses how he is going to worship God. And the criteria today is how it makes him feel. And it's interesting, when I was reading one article by a uh, well-known New Testament scholar, that doesn't mean that he is anywhere close to our camp, He's considered evangelical, but that's a word that is amorphous and can mean anything. His name's Craig Keener, and about five times as he's talking about the Asbury revival, he uses the term feeling to describe the basically in the sentences that are talking about various uh, things that are going on and criteria. It's all about how people feel about what is going on as uh, the main idea. So God says, number one, I'm going to tell you where you're going to worship me, and I'm going to tell you what offerings you're going to bring to me. That's what's described in Leviticus, and he summarizes them here as burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, heave offerings, vow offerings, and free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. But he says, when he gets to verse 8, you shall not at all do as we're doing here today, every man doing what's right in his own eyes. That's a direct statement that contradicts the modus operandi of the judge, whole judges period where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so this is the, the main thought there. The passage goes on in uh, verses 11 down to 14. There, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses. There you shall bring all that I command you. Skip down to verse 13. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place you say, see. That's why they wanted to get rid, he wanted them to get rid of the high places. But in the place where the Lord chooses. So God is very specific about the conditions of worship. You can't say, I worship God in a way that makes me feel like I'm worshiping. I'm not going to worship God in a way that, that I think he would like. 
the ultimate criteria is what does God say about what worship is, and we have to define it that way. And so, verse 31, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So it's very specific. People today in our contemporary culture do not want to believe that there are right ways to worship and wrong ways to worship. It comes back to the subjectivity of our culture. Subjectivity is a word that focuses on me and what I think rather than an objective truth that is uh, laid out there. So Judges 17.6, at the end of the introduction, which is verses 1 through 5, the introduction to the introduction of the episode, the whole first chapters of that episode, reminds us that there's no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The episode starts with uh, talking about Micah, who is of the hill country of Ephraim. I showed you these maps last time, and I made the point that... Just as chronology is the backbone to Scripture, so is geography. And one of the things I do in my tour guide that I have written for um, for when the trips to Israel is try to point out that there are certain doctrinal teachings, certain things the Lord taught at specific geographical locations. So we ought to be able to tie the geographical location to the doctrinal truth. That will help us remember it. So the focus here is on this central area. Ephraim is the purple, the tribal area for Ephraim. But Ephraim was so numerous and so significant that basically the name Ephraim becomes the name that's used for all of the northern tribes. And in the south, Judah becomes the name associated with all of the southern tribes. You have Judah, Simeon, and this little yellow area up here, which is uh, Benjamin. That's the area where this is all centered. So what's going to happen is the tribe of Dan compromises, fails to take the land that God gave them because they failed to trust God. So they're going to go searching for a better place, and they run into Micah at his place, and this Levitical priest that he's hired. What's interesting is the text says they recognized his voice. That's a clue. He's well known. He's not some just some uh, some Levitical priest that came out from behind the bushes last week. He is well known, well known enough to where they recognize his voice, and he's going to lead the nation and that tribe into apostasy, and they're eventually going to go up here and massacre the people in Laish and take it over and uh, establish an alternate religious site up there, which is not authorized by God. So that's the background that we see here. And we see the kind of thinking that we even see today among Christians is, if I do certain things, God's going to bless me. So I've got a Levitical priest And because he's a Levitical priest, I'm going to have, God's going to bless me because I'm attached to this political, uh, this Levitical priest. What's interesting is I know some people who think that because they go to a certain church with a certain pastor and they're attached to that church and that pastor, he's got the truth, but they don't have it. They're not applying it. They're just attached to some church and, oh yeah, I go to so-and-so's church and therefore uh, God's going to bless me. No, no, you're still being a legalist. 
So uh, that's what's going on here with Micah. He's just an apostate and treats the Levite like a good luck charm. So in uh, the last verse of this section, 1831, what happens is the tribe of Dan is going to go up north and they're going to set up for themselves Micah's carved image. That violates the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Uh, and so then they're going to set up an alternate site all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. That's the tabernacle. So they're, pick, they're, they're rejecting God's site. They're rejecting God's commandments. They're going to worship God the way they want to worship God and expect God to somehow, uh, somehow bless them. But the key thought in here is there's no king in Israel. And what that refers back to is Deuteronomy 33.5. I pointed this out last time, but I expanded it a little bit this time because it says here that he, that is Yahweh in the context, was king in Jeshurun. Now, what does Jeshurun describe? Where does this word derive and what is its significance? It is a name of honor for Israel, according to the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, and it derives from the root yashar, which means to be upright. So it's a positive term. It's sort of a positive uh, term of endearment that God uses four times in the whole Old Testament for Israel. Only four times, and three of them are in Deuteronomy. Only one comes later, and that's in Isaiah 44.2. Now, we have a synagogue here in Houston, a congregation Beth Yeshurun. That's where it comes from. It's the largest congregational that, remember, in, in Judaism, you have Reformed Judaism, which is very conservative. It's just the derivatives of Pharisaism is what Orthodox Judaism is. I said reform, didn't I? Orthodox Judaism. Then you had the liberal Jews under uh, Mendelssohn, under Moses Mendelssohn. His son was the composer Felix Mendelssohn. He became a Christian, so did half his brothers and sisters. Moses Mendelssohn was a real, he rejected the whole thing, so he's the father of reform Judaism. So Orthodox Judaism is over here far on the right. Liberal Judaism or, or, or Reform Judaism is way out here on the left, but it's not at the cliff yet. It's just almost there. Conservative Judaism means that they didn't want to go as close to the cliff as the Reform guys, so they want to still hold to some of the values of Orthodox Judaism, so they come about halfway back. They're not conservative. They're liberal, but they're just not as liberal as Reform Judaism, Okay. See, and before the Enlightenment, Reformation meant going back to the original sources. After the Reformation, uh, I mean, excuse me, after the Enlightenment, the term Reformed or Reformation refers to reforming it according to the standards of human rationalism and empiricism. That'll explain something if you're paying attention. You often used to hear it a lot when news media was still aghast at what happened on 9-11, and they would say that there needs to be a reformation in in Islam. Well, they're defining it differently than we define reformation in terms of Christianity. 
Reformation in Christianity means reform it back to the original sources. Reformation after the Enlightenment was not to go back to the the biblical or the Quranic texts. It was to go back, it was to reform it or align it to our new advanced knowledge according to the Enlightenment. So what they meant was, uh, wasn't what a lot of Christians heard. The reality is, is that those who uh, attacked us on 9-11 were reforming it in the way Christians used the term. They were going back to the Quran as their authority. But liberal Americans who have imbibed deeply at the poisonous fountain of the Enlightenment thought that, oh, they need to reform. In other words, they need to get rid of all the religious ideas and go along with just the, uh, all the ideas that came out of the Enlightenment. And that'll, that'll dilute Islam and make it something palatable. They're all confused. So congregational, uh, congregational is fairly conservative, and Beth Yashurn was a co- resulted from the combination of a conservative shul and an orthodox shul. So it's kind of elements of it are conservadox. So it's a, and it's the largest congregational synagogue in, in the country, right here over on Beechnut. So that's Beth Yashurn. That's where that, that's where that comes from. So what we see and what we saw last time was that as we go through time in the Old Testament and as you go through time in the church age, doctrine gets diluted. It is attacked by Satan, who is the great counterfeiter. This is what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 13 through 15. These false apostles deceitful workers are transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. I can't tell you how many people in certain denominations, especially charismatic and charismatic influence denominations, believe in apostles and bishops. And I've, I, you know, I always want to say, you're an apostle? You don't look that old. You had to see Christ. Well, you haven't seen him. So they, they don't really care what the Bible says. So uh, Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, and they look so wonderful. That's why, you know, people used to give me a hard time because I would say, oh, there's nothing wrong with going to see uh, Harry Potter. I said that at teaching on demonism at a conservative theological society meeting in about 2001 or two. And, oh, people just, you know, Harry Potter's witchcraft. I said, and Pollyanna is better? Disney is better. Disney's just demonism, but it's all wrapped up in sweetness and light. It's all nice and and good deeds and everything. You've got a nice, wonderful apostate Methodist minister in Pollyanna. I mean, that's more evil than than anything in Harry Potter. But you know, people don't aren't taught well. So you have this this Micah in Ephraim who's going to create more problems, and so uh, he steals money from his mother, and um, he brings it back, and then she blesses him. See, it all sounds so good using biblical language in a nice way, so they sound at first glance like they're they're trying to be squared away, but they're not. They're just using, this is one of the devil's great counterfeits, is to use biblical language uh, to confuse people, because 
what they're really saying has nothing to do with what the Bible says. So she is. Uh, she now takes this silver and she wants her son to make a carved image and a molded image, which violates the first commandment. And so she gives it back to him. They're promoting religion. Now let's talk about what religion is. Religion is not a term that should be used for biblical Christianity. It often is, and it's often used in, in a way that's a broad term, but the way I have been taught to use it and have always used it is it's human works. It's the efforts of man to get God's blessing on his own terms. So I define it this way. Religion here is a term for the religious views generated from the wicked human heart rather than from the revelation of God in the 66 books of the Bible. What's your ultimate authority? Is it what you think is right or what God says is right? That's the bottom line. Are you going to interpret the Bible by your experience? Or are you going to interpret your experience by the Bible? There's a huge difference. Most people are interpreting uh, the Bible by their experience, which means they're totally into false doctrine. Their mind is the ultimate uh, reference point. Second, religion is based on humans doing something that impresses God and he approves it, gives you a pat on the back and you're blessed because you did something that impressed God. Third point is that religion denies or ignores sin. Now later we're going to talk about these revivals. One of the things that we see in these or should look for in revivals is what do they say about sin? And in many of them, they ignore or deny sin. It's never brought up. It's never talked about. Is it brought up? Is it a factor in the Asbury revival? Was it a factor in the Jesus movement? The answer to is that it was a factor in the Jesus movement. It's not a factor in Asbury, at least that I've been able to discern. So some of the things that religion emphasizes... All people are good. They're just so good. We're ju- we're just you know they, they mean well. They're so sincere. There's no idea that they could be sincerely wrong. Or God helps those who help themselves. See, you got to help yourself before God will help you. That's just pure works. No no concept of grace. Sin is an old-fashioned idea. We just don't talk about that anymore. Or God overlooks these problems and he just sort of winks at it. That's just human nature and he just gives us a pat on the back anyway. He's not, he understands that, that we just can't be any different. Just rationalism. Or sin only describes socially unacceptable things. That ha- idea has been present at least going in America, at least going back to the early 19th century. Generally, it's always been there throughout the ages. It only describes socially unacceptable things or things that violate social justice. That's today. So if it violates the thinking of the woke crowd, instead of an awakening, you're going to have an awokening. And you're not going to be biblical. You're going to you're going to come up with your own ideas of what ought to be bad, and then you're going to impose that upon God. And if God doesn't go along with you, then you reject Christianity 
as as just white man's religion and Christianity has nothing to do with us and Christianity is really evil because it doesn't go along with Karl Marx. So the issue is who sets the standards, society or God, the individual or God? Who sets the standards? Well, the standard for right and wrong is God, whether you understand it or not. Because there are times we look at it and we go, I just don't understand that. But God is absolutely right. We have to, that's our starting point. It's, our starting point always has to be, what does the Bible say about God? Do I understand it? Well, not entirely. Good, because you have a finite mind and God is infinite and you ought not expect that you understand everything. That's a problem the Unitarians have. Well, I don't understand the Trinity. Well, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means you have a finite mind and you can't quite grasp the Trinity. Fourth point, religion attempts to please God through human efforts, human worship. Oh, if we have a really great musical band up there on the stage entertaining everybody and we can get thousands of people there, that's got to impress God with our sincerity. So we attempt to please God through sacrifice of all kinds of of, uh, perverted forms of worship. Religion says there are many ways to God. God says there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. This, this exception, exceptionalism of Christianity is what really drives unbelievers and a lot of Christians nuts because they just want everybody to get to heaven. God does too. But he says, and I've given you a free gift, and I've given you a Savior, and you've heard the gospel. All you have to do is believe it, and you'll get into heaven. But they don't want something that is uh, so exclusive. Sixth, religion says God is different for different people. Haven't you all heard that? I heard that in a movie just recently. Well, God's just God's different for different people, and that's okay. He manifests one way to some people, manifests another way to other people, and it's all good. Well, that's what Satan does. He manifests one way to some people and one way to other people, and that's called Satanism. Seventh, religions have superstitions, like, oh, I'm going to get a Levitical priest, and then God's going to be good to me. Good luck charms. The whole idea of good luck, charms, that's not back luck. Good luck, bad luck, talismans, charms, uh, throwing salt over your shoulder, all these kinds of things, carrying a rabbit's foot for good luck, all those sorts of things. That's just superstition and demonism. Eighth, religion often masquerades with biblical terms, rituals, and language. Now, the problem is that we're all deceivable. We're all gullible at times. Why? Jeremiah 17, 9, and 10. The heart, that is the inner part of man, the core of who we are. The heart is deceitful. The biggest problem isn't the deception from others. It's our willingness 
to be deceived. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It ends with a question. Have you ever noticed that? It ends with a question. The answer is in the next verse. Who knows your heart? It's the Lord. He searches the heart. What is it that that we learn in um, uh, in Hebrews four twelve? The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than it, any two edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Lord searches the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. All right. See, human religion comes out of this deceitful heart. So that raises a question about all these false religions. And we have a lot of talk today about revival simply because we had the Jesus Revolution film that came out. And then at the almost the same time or a little bit before it, we had this uh, event that occurred at um, at Asbury College in Kentucky with this claim from some were calling it a revival. Others were hoping it was a uh, an awakening like the first great awakening or the second great awakening and that this was somehow God was going to move in such a way and people have I think a genuine desire hoping that something like that will happen because things are such a mess. They they genuinely believe that that the our only hope is the scripture. Our only hope is the country turns to God and maybe that's what's going on here. But we ought not be too quick to assume that that is what's going on. So there's some criteria, there's some ways to evaluate this that are based on Scripture. Remember, we always have to start with God. We always have to start with God's Word. We establish criteria from the Word of God, not from feelings. Starting with the Enlightenment, with the shift of knowledge from God to man. When Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, the basis for truth became man's thought rather than God's revelation. And so what happens from that point to here, over 350 years, we get down to where we, we have no basis for knowledge whatsoever anymore in our culture. Postmodernism says everybody has their own truth. Uh, that, that's just a totally irrational concept. So, we're going to learn some things about revivals. First of all, so-called revivals are in history are often characterized by non-biblical worship. Just what, what Micah is doing. And that, that's so important to understand this, that there is non-biblical worship. Just because you talk about God, redemption, forgiveness, just because you use words that are found in the Scripture doesn't mean that it's biblical worship. A lot, this is very controversial because a lot of people really aren't trained well in the classical thinking. By classical, I mean that these ideas go back 
at least as far as Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates, maybe even before that, we just don't always have a record of it, that music is a language. Now, for those of you who may not have heard a critique of contemporary Christian worship before, there are two series that I've got up on my website. One is called Worship and Music, and the other is called Biblical Worship. Then in 2012, and I think again about 2017 or 18, we had a, a keynote speaker at the Chafer Conference by the name of Scott Annual, A-N-I-O-L. And it's very important to pay attention to what Scott says. When I first started really thinking about music, the kind of music that we should have in church that honors and glorifies God, I was just as much a product of my generation as anybody else. And I had grown up singing some of what passed as contemporary Christian worship in the 80s. And let me tell you, if I had a choice between what they what goes as contemporary Christian worship today and what they were singing in the early 80s, I'd sing what was in the early 80s without batting an eye. It was much closer to Scripture and better music than what it, where it is today. It, this thing has deteriorated to where it's just the it, it's just the slime pit of the pigs it, that the uh, prodigal son is wallowing in. It's horrible. And that's not, oh, well, you're old. No, it's not. It's because I have learned some things about music that I didn't know, even though I grew up playing piano, uh, trombone, trumpet. I have a background in music, but just because somebody's a good musician and even maybe composes some things doesn't mean they understand music. Now, what do I mean by that? There is a discipline, an academic discipline, called musicology. And as I was studying this, reading chapters on Plato and music in Alan Bloom's book, Closing of the American Mind, back in the late 80s, and as I was reading a few other things, and I've read a lot that's been written over the years, this isn't just my opinion. There's a lot of people with this. And it's not just, oh, well, that's, your, that, that's how you feel about it. No, it isn't. I, like, I listen to all kinds of music from, from opera. I don't listen to rap. But from opera to country western to western to all kinds of stuff in between 50s, gold, oldies, you know, I, I grew up with that. That all makes you feel good, but you have to understand that language, music is a language. And Scott Annual's first set of lectures back in, whenever that was, 2014 or so, uh, were really good addressing that. And he has a couple of books out now that are really good at walking you through this. When I first got into this, as I was saying, <coughs> I understood that if you're really going to talk honestly and intelligently about music, you have to control three areas of academics. You have to really understand theology. You have to be a good biblical theologian because that defines your thinking and your content. Second, you have to understand philosophy because everything in life relates to certain philosophical positions. 
Plato had certain views on music, and he understood that if you change the music, you'll change the culture, that music is a language. And that goes back to the 5th century B.C. And a lot of people think that this debate is just because, well, you have your taste and I have my taste. It has nothing whatsoever to do with taste. It has to do with understanding the dynamics of music. And I have been privileged to be around some people who are very well trained, not just in music, but in musicology. Musicology is the study of the philosophy that undergirds music. Whenever you see worldview shifts, and I did this in one of my series years ago, whenever you see a worldview shift, as the worldview shifted from, uh, from Neoplatonism, uh, under Neoplatonism in the early church, you had a certain kind of music. As it shifted from Neoplatonism to Aristotelianism, the music changed. And as you went from Aristotelianism uh, to uh, biblical epistemology, that's the biblical way of knowing things, it changed the music again. And you had the Reformation produce some of the greatest music of all time. And music has to reflect the basic values of the Creator and what is seen in God's creation. And so it can't be certain kinds of music because certain kinds of music are the outgrowth of a pagan view of reality. And taking a music package of paganism and blending it with the words of Scripture, you can't baptize human viewpoint. You can't baptize the devil's doctrines. And that's what you're trying to do is baptize the music with the words, and you've got things with contradictory a contradictory message. And I tried some experiments with this about 20 years ago and uh, because I had a congregation that, that came out of, a lot of them came out of, well, some of them even came out of Calvary Chapel, but they'd come out of that wing of the Jesus revolution. And so um, I said, well, you know, I was switching, over, switching them over to uh, good historic hymns and they said, well, we want to sing more. I said, okay, we'll just come in and we'll sing good historic hymns. And instead of putting them at the beginning, we'll have 30 or 45 minutes of singing at the end. They go, well, no, after the sermon, we need to go home. Well, now you're getting the point. The point of coming to church is the sermon and the teaching, not the music. It's always a learning process for some people. So what we see in these, in these revivals is that that they have, especially in the 20th century, have often borrowed from the music they loved when they were unsaved Christians mired in existentialism and nihilism, and they take that music that they learned to like that was com the language of existentialism and nihilism, and they take that and they put lightweight Jesus words with it, and because people like the music and the emotion that was produced by the music, that was a real compromise with the world system. And Romans 12.2 says not to be conformed to the world in any area of thinking. And in, in discussions I've had with people, they think music is neutral. They really do. 
Well, okay, and I asked the question, so do you think there's one area of human life, human existence that is untouched by the fall? Because that's what you're saying is music's neutral. Well, music can't be neutral. Nothing in life is neutral since the fall. So anyway, this is what happens is in revivals in history, they're often characterized, especially in the 20th century, with this compromise with the world's music because if we sing the music I like, the young people won't come. So you think that it's okay to to do a bait and switch? You're going to give them, you're going to give them the devil's music to try to win them over so they'll listen to Bible doctrine. It doesn't work. I've tried it. You know, it's either one or the other. So. Um, we, we, that, that's what we have to see is, is that the music is a big part of this Asbury revival and what kind of music is. So that's a question that needs to be asked. So when we talk about worship, we need to ask the question, is the worship that is taking place in Asbury, is that based on a sound biblical theology of worship? And there's all kinds of views on worship today because of the subjectivism of evangelicals. And so they don't have a standard. There are some good books out there. Uh, Alan Ross's book is probably the best theology on worship that's in print, and I've heard that from other people who didn't have him as a professor and didn't know him personally, but it's it's probably the best theology on worship because it comes out of of the Scripture. Second, biblical worship is God-centered, not man-centered. It's not self-centered. God defines worship, not tradition, emotion, or music. That's what we got out of Deuteronomy. God has the right as the creator, as the sovereign, righteous God, to say, this is acceptable and this is not acceptable. It depends on what I say and where I say and how I say, not on what makes you feel good. So God defines worship, not tradition, not emotion, and not music. Third, biblical worship is defined by truth, not by emotion, not by how it makes you feel. And truth sometimes doesn't make you feel very good. Jesus said to the woman at the well, a time will, be, will come soon when we will worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. So there's absolutes that relate to worship. And then fourth, biblical worship in the church age is based on the cross and the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. That's got to be the emphasis. That's what undergirds it is what happened at the cross. That doesn't mean every song is about the cross, but that is what undergirds the message. And it has to be uh, consistent with the theology that is in the Scripture. Secondly, the term uh, revival does not occur in this sense, in the sense of, of, of these revivals that have come along in the Scripture. It has to do with a physical revival. You're worn out, you're tired, God, you want God to revive you. So it's a physical uh, re-energizing. So it, uh, it, the, what the term is that we find is spiritual renewal for the believer or for the nation of Israel, characterized by turning away from idols and from paganism and toward the living God. 
in terms of personal confession, Paul, uh, excuse me, David says in Psalm 51:10, "Create in me a clean heart, O God." That's his confession. First John 1 John 1:9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. That's the key word. Uh, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See, that's how renew is is used. So we get renewed in that sense every time we get back in fellowship. Isaiah forty thirty one: Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. God is going to strengthen them. All right. So let's look at biblical examples of a national renewal. In the Old Testament, that's the main idea here, is to look at these examples from the Scripture, and what do we find? So the first example is King Asa. King Asa is described in uh, uh, 1 Kings 15.9 and 2 Chronicles 14-15. to He reigned for 41 years in Jerusalem. He was the great-grandson of David, the grandson of Solomon, and the son of Jeroboam, the first king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He is evaluated this way in the scripture. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Remember what we keep reading in Judges? People did what was right in their own eyes. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. Notice it doesn't mention Jeroboam or Solomon, because they got into idolatry. And uh, verse 2, And he banished the perverted persons from the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. So he is doing something about the disobedience to the law and the sin in the land. He's, he's cleansing it. And this, this touched on his uh, grandmother, uh, he Also, he removed Maacha, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah, and Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook Kidron, right down there below the southern gates of the temple. Some of you have been there. The only negative about him is that he didn't remove the high places. He got rid of the idols, but the groves where they worshipped were still there. But the scripture says his heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. That's, that's David. David never succumbed to idolatry. That's why God says he's a man after my own heart. That doesn't mean he didn't sin. Sure, he sinned. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He conspired to have her husband killed, and he was killed. And he tried to cover up the fact that he got her pregnant. So God brought divine discipline into his life. Second Chronicles says this, says, And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of Yahweh his God, for he removed the altars of the foreign gods in the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek Yahweh God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. Now, what's the law and the commandment? That's scripture. That's the Mosaic law. That's what you find from Exodus 20 to the end of Exodus and all of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and parts of Numbers. He's commanding them to put the word of God at the center of their life and at the center of their thinking. And he removes the, the idolatry, the high places. So what do we learn from this? First of all, uncompromising obedience to Scripture was at the center of 
of that change, of that renewal in the nation. He commanded the people to seek Yahweh Elohim of their fathers and to observe the law. Second, he removed the visible idols from the cities of Judah. You can't remove the idols of the mind, but you can remove the physical idols from the cities of Judah. Third, he failed to remove the high places. These were the worship sites associated with the worship of the nature gods and the fertility gods. So some of that still went on. But the idols were gone. And fourth, he was loyal to God in that he himself, like David, did not succumb to idolatry as Solomon and others did. And then fifth, the scripture says that God gave them rest during his time. So God blessed them because of his obedience, and he put scripture at the center of the change. Second Chronicles. 15.12 says, Then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. The people committed themselves again to the covenant. It's a a new renewal of the covenant ceremony. Verse 13, And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was to be put to death. Capital punishment, which goes along with the Mosaic law. You're not going to go along with this? Okay, good. We're going to execute you. Verse 14, Then they took an oath before the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns. What that means is that they were singing and they were had an orchestra playing. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Man, they were serious about it. Elijah. Elijah called down fire from heaven after taunting and teasing the false prophets of the Asherah and Baal, and he calls out to God, that the people will know that you are Yahweh God, that you have turned their hearts, and they that that you have turned their hearts back to you again. So that's why I see this as a renewal. It says you have turned their hearts back to you again. You bring fire down from heaven, so the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Verse 39, now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. This is worship. They they say, Yahweh, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the book Kishon, and he executed them there. That would have been a bloody mess that took a lot of time because... Uh, you had uh, 700 prophets of Baal and three or 400 prophets to Asherah. Jonah. Jonah finally made his way after God told him to go to Nineveh and take the gospel to them. Jonah tried to run the other way. God brought him back via a fish ship, and the fish brought him back and barfed him up on the on the beach. And so he had to go to Nineveh. And just three verses, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He wanted it to be overthrown. He probably was was uh, rejoicing at that. 
But the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when word came to the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, put aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. They believed, and the destruction of Nineveh was put off for 200 years. What's at the center of that? It's the word of God, voiced through a prophet. So in all these examples, it's the scripture that's at the center of the renewal, or it's the word of a prophet giving the word of God or direct revelation from God that is in the forefront. It's hearing and applying the word of God. They're not just saying, oh, well, that's nice. I guess that's true. That's okay. Let's go back to doing things the way we did. We have another renewal under Jehoshaphat described in Second Chronicles chapters 19 to 20. Jehoshaphat turned to God in prayer for the people because they were being threatened by the Moabites and the Ammonites. And so he goes back to the law and the prophets. He goes back to Scripture. And he, the prophet Jehaziel the, uh, says the Lord, um, and through the prophet Jehaziel, the Lord answered, telling them that he would deliver them. Listen to what God says. He says, Do not be afraid or dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. It's not how many weapons you have. It's not how much uh, training they have, although that's all important. What matters is that God's on your side in terms of this battle. So he says to go down and uh, fight them. And he concludes, God concludes, do not fear, be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for Yahweh is with you. And then in verse 20, so they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. What's at the center of that? It's the word of God and the message of the gospel of the Old Testament. Then we come to Hezekiah in Second Chronicles 29 to 32. We're told in Second Chronicles 29 that Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. He reigned for uh, 29, uh, 29 years in Jerusalem. We're told his mother was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. So he's like Asa. You know, he's going back, he's going to be like Jehoshaphat, like Asa, and like David. And in the first year of the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. The temple was shut down, and it had become a storage house for idols. And he said to them, and called the Levites, and he says, Sanctify yourselves according to Scripture. Sanctify the house of the Lord. Carry the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil. That's idolatry. In the eyes of the Lord our God, they have abandoned him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord, and turned their backs on him. So he has uh, turned to the Lord. He's received grace. He's humbled himself. In Second Chronicles 32, 25-26, he confesses his arrogance and pride and... Uh, things turn around. In verse 5 we read, he told them to sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord. Uh, 
and they admit their sin and they clean things up and they go back to worshiping God as Scripture said. So what do we learn? The Word of God, the Scripture, is the basis for every time they turn. Every time they they turn and God blesses them, Scripture is at the center of that movement. Second, there's a cleansing of the priests individually and then the house of the Lord. So there's an individual cleansing and a corporate cleansing of the nation. Third, there's submission to God and to his word. They do what God's word says to do, and they get rid of the idols. Fourth, the appropriate Levitical sacrifices are made. And we read in verse 35, verses 35 and 36 of chapter 29, also the burnt offerings were in abundance. Where did they find out about the burnt offerings? They went back and they read Leviticus. They were reading the scripture and doing what the scripture said to do. They have restored these sacrifices which had not been observed in decades. And then they're going to restore the Passover which had not been observed in decades. And they're going to have to observe it a month late because they hadn't started the cleansing process in time. So in verse 36, we read, Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. Then we come to the last one, which is Josiah, the last one before the uh, Babylonian conquest. His dates are 640 to 609. Nebuchadnezzar's first invasion is 605. So this is the last chance at grace. So Josiah takes the throne when he's eight years old. He reigned 31 years. And look at the evaluation in verse 2. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. When he was 12 years old, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. In chapter 22 of 2 Kings, we read that the Hilkiah, the high priest, has gone in to clean up the temple because it's become a mess again. And he discovers the book of the law. He discovers the Torah. Nobody had seen the Bible in years. Nobody had seen the Torah at all. They didn't know what they were doing. It had been hidden away. And so he comes up, he says, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And in verse 21 of chapter, uh, Second Chronicles 34, we read, uh, go inquire, uh, I think jo- uh, Josiah is saying this, go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of that book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Now Josiah took him back to the word, but the Lord's punishment was already set, which was the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. After they came back to the land under Nehemiah, they have another renewal. Uh, so Nehemiah 8, 6, they come back and Ezra is, leads them in prayer. They have all the people there, about 40,000. And they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. See, that's what a sermon is supposed to do. And Nehemiah 
whose governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord. Lord your God, do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So the scripture is at the center of this. And what happens? Well, when they hear it, they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And then in verse 3, they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. Can you do that? You're going to stand up for six hours and listen to me read the Bible? That's what they did. That's called positive volition. Sitting in a comfortable chair and air conditioning, maybe. So they stood in their place and they read from the book of the law for one-fourth of the day and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So what do we see? God's at the center. Second, Scripture is the basis. Third, sin is identified. Sin is disobedience to God, identifying the sin so they can turn from it to God. So, in this country, we have had more than 10 so-called revivals. We had the first Great Awakening in 1734 to 1743. There's an asterisk there because I think this is a genuine movement of God the Holy Spirit. The Bible was at the center. Thousands, tens of thousands were saved. The American War for Independence would not have happened without the shift to the Word of God that occurred in the first Great Awakening. You had key uh, preachers who were preaching the scripture. You had Jonathan Edwards in Massachusetts. George Whitfield was a, a British English evangelist. And then when you come to uh, Virginia, uh, down down in uh, down in Virginia, there is there was a uh, um, Samuel Davies. Samuel Davies was a remarkable man. He was eloquent speaker, but he had a profound influence on a young man in his church who turned out to be one of the greatest orators in American history, and that was Patrick Henry. He learned how to speak from listening to his pastor, and Patrick Henry was saved in that ministry. So there were tens of thousands saved during that time in the First Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening had many negative results. Its dates are 1802 to 1830. Uh, it, it had a west, uh, an East Coast uh, facet and a west co- Western facet. It probably had some positive influences that some people were saved, but there was a lot of uh, religious emphasis on good works and morality. Uh, the One of the greatest uh, re- revivalists of that Revival was Charles Finney, who I think was one of the most evil men in history because he didn't believe in substitutionary atonement. He didn't believe that all men were born sinners. Uh, therefore, they were perfectible, and Jesus died just to show you how you could perfect yourself and perfect society. And he brought a lot of evil and a lot of human good and works into Christianity, and a lot of Christians don't even understand that. 
So that's a second great awakening. I don't think it's so good. I think it brought a lot of bad things into Christianity. Then you had the layman's prayer revival that happened in 1857 to 1858, right before the war between the states. It was instigated by a lay missionary by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere, and he decided to get six men together for prayer meeting during lunch in New York. A year later, 10,000 men were praying daily, and it had a tremendous impact even upon a young man, businessman at that time by the name of Dwight Moody, who may have been saved uh, right about that time. Then you had the Civil War revivals on both sides. I've got four or five books at home that just are all about the revivals in the Northern Army and the Southern Army. Dwight Moody was preaching a revival in the Northern Army, and Ulysses S. Grant got saved. So just a tremendous impact. I think that, that a lot of people were saved. Scriptures were at the center. The cross was at the center. You had the urban revivals, otherwise known as the Moody-Sankey revivals. Dwight Moody was the evangelist. Ira Sankey was the music leader. 1875 to 1885, the Bible was at the center. The cross was preached. People went to, more people went to church. People were saved. The Bible was the focal point. Six, you had the Welsh revivals in 1904-1905. Many Welsh had immigrated working the mines in Pennsylvania and uh, West Virginia. And uh, they came to the U.S., and there were many saved. Billy Sunday was a former uh, baseball player, and he would always get on the stage. He was very dramatic, and he would slide to home in heaven, things of that nature. He was a, kind of a, a wild card, but lots were saved. Cross was at the center. The Azusa Street Pentecostal Revival in 1905 not so much. This is the basis of the Pentecostal uh, kickoff coming out of a small church in a, a back, uh, sort of a warehouse district in, uh, in L.A. Uh, back then. And a lot of, I'm not saying a lot of people weren't saved, but the Bible's not, its experience is at the center, not the Bible. Uh, after World War II, there were various revivals. On the good side, there were the Billy Graham evangelistic meetings. On the bad side, there was the Pentecostal healing revivals where you had Oral Roberts and you had uh, Kenneth Hagan and you had Kenneth Copeland and a number of others that just brought lots of heresy in the health and wealth gospel and a lot of garbage into uh, Christianity and its gross heresy and paganism. You had the Jesus movement, which was the focus of the, the film, the Jesus, um, the, the Jesus Revolution. And after I wrote that book, book review and we emailed it out, and I don't know how many places it, it went to, I had more replies from people who are pastors and had lifelong ministries. They got saved then. They weren't ever hippies. They weren't ever charismatics or Pentecostal. But that's when they got saved as as a result of that. So a lot of people got the wrong impression that that's it was just something that was on the charismatic Pentecostal side. Well, that's kind of how it got started. That was pretty accurate, as I pointed out in my my review. And there was a lot that was I should have put an asterisk there. There was a lot there that was biblical. There were a lot of people that got saved. I think it's a genuine move of the Holy Spirit in, in, in America at, at that time. And um, 
and and probably hundreds of thousands of young people became missionaries and got trained in good seminaries and went on the mission field then and most of them retired uh, or died before the end of the 20th century or in the early part of the 21st century and we don't have I used to hear statistics on this. I don't read them anymore, but it used to be that the expectation that we would have twenty-five, only twenty-five percent of missionaries today that that we had forty years ago. And then we have this Asbury College revival. Now, what's interesting is there have been nine revivals over the last hundred and twenty years, which is suspect. And what caught my attention here was, notice, it's February. I kept typing February, 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 1905, 1908, 
and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. He's talking to Timothy. From childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures. What Holy Scriptures were those? That was the Old Testament. He's not talking about the New Testament. New Testament hadn't been written when Timothy was a child. That's all the Old Testament. He says, from childhood you've known the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament Jewish Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We need to teach the Old Testament. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. We have to be certain that Satan will deceive. Second Corinthians eleven three and 4. Paul said, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Satan is the master counterfeiter. I've already gone over 2 Corinthians 11:13 through 15. Third, we cannot be gullible. Too many Christians will believe anything. We can't be gullible. We must test the spirits against the revealed word of God. Proverbs 14:15 says, "The simple believes every word." A lot of evangelicals are simple, and they're simply gullible. But the prudent considers well his steps. He thinks it through. He looks for results. Now, this thing just happened, but, but it's happened not eight times before. So I don't think we've seen the cross at the center. I don't think we've seen the Word of God at the center. I don't think we've seen the churches in that area expand with new converts. That's what happens in legitimate renew, uh, spiritual renewals. 1 John 4, 1 tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Fourth, the danger is the world, which is in Greek, cosmos. It's the cosmic system based on Satan's system of thinking. All the world's religions, all the philosophies, all the worldviews of everybody who's not a believer, they don't have truth. Uh, it's all based on, and uh, they're not derived from, based on, or consistent with Scripture. James says they're adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward, with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Goes on to say, describe this in James three. Uh, it says that this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly or soulish or demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Fifth and final. In the final analysis, in some of these movements, we can look back and see that much of it was a movement of the Holy Spirit. The Bible was the basis. 
The cross was the focus. Untold thousands were saved. Bible-based churches grew, and God was glorified, and emotion was downplayed. But some of these were merely the manipulation of people by false prophets and false teachers who led them back to corruption as a dog returns to its vomit, 2 Peter 2.22. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So there are some of these movements have been good, and we can judge it afterwards. We have to wait and see. But with eight previous revivals at Asbury that have not produced the discernible results that we see in these others, I'm suspicious that this is just another emotional manipulation. And so we need to watch it and be careful and not get sucked in just because we want to believe that God's going to intervene and change things. And we, as our generation, will not have to go through the suffering that we see coming. But the reality is we can't deceive ourselves. We can't be gullible. We can't believe fables. We have to recognize that, as the Scripture says, we can reap what, what we have sown, and it's not going to be pretty. But we can trust the Lord no matter what happens. He's going to provide for us. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, and we'll just, we just pray that you will help us to understand these trends and recognize what's going on around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.